Welcome to The Emergent Human. We'll explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a somatic educator, executive coach, and transpersonal guide, and I'm your host. Quick shout out to my friend, Erwan LaCour, founder of MoveNet. He has a new breathwork retreat, June of this year, 2021, and in November of 2021 in Yalapa, Mexico. I'll include a link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in working in breathwork with Erwan. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated different somatic approaches to his work, including rolfing. To learn more about his work, you can visit his website at cosperscafidi.com. Today's guest is Mansell Denton, also called Little Beaver. He's a founder of Sacred Hunting host of the Manson Denton podcast and subject of an upcoming documentary, Below the Drop, exploring our relationship to life and death through hunting. Feeling insecure in early life, he chased a woman to Europe, which led him to prison. Struggling with shame and confusion of what it means to be a man, he found him his calling with the sacred art of hunting. He now desires to share this practice with more men. His indigenous name comes from Crow Sundance Chief. His spiritual lineage is derived from six years of mentorship from a Muskegee Creek medicine man named Will Starhart. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me and giving me a platform to share. Yeah, it's, it's great to see you. And as we we're talking offline, I love the pictures behind you. Uh, if you can move slightly to your left so people can see that picture too. Very cool. Maybe that will come in part of our conversation a little bit later. But let's talk about your background. You know, what led you to the path that you're on now? I think like many people who are in a healing space or in a transformative workspace, I imagine pain is what led them down the path that they're on. And for me specifically, there was just a lot of pain around my definition of masculinity and manhood feeling like a lot of the mainstream uh, perceptions of it didn't feel aligned, but also feeling like some things that were innate and, and true to me were kind of vilified and made wrong. And so just uh, a lot of confusion and in that confusion, creating an, an immature form of what masculinity was. And as you mentioned in the bio, um, that manifested in a lot of shame uh, around relating with women and uh, around my race as far as uh you know being half white but also half not in a predominantly uh anglo uh environment that i grew up in and it just created a kind of a perfect storm for me to uh make bad decisions and ultimately uh, put me in a place where I was in prison. The, the long and short of that story is I was so desperate for the affection and love from a woman who lived in Europe that I was stealing documents uh, in order to be with her. And, you know, every boy in traditional culture has a rite of passage and I found my rite of passage through prison and it's not actually too uncommon because, you know, many Aboriginal Australians, for example, kind of look at prison as a, as a modern rite of passage as their culture has been so destroyed and demoralized. Mm 
Um, and so it, that was such a wake up call that it definitely put me on a path to navigating, finding for myself what masculinity means and now facilitating and holding space for other men to have that rite of passage, have the transformation that comes with that and hopefully become, you know, better fathers, better lovers, et cetera. Did you, was your prison time in Europe? It was, it was in the United States. Yeah. I was in the Texas state penitentiary for six months on an eight year sentence. Okay. Now you're in Texas now. Are you born and raised in Texan? I was not born here, but I moved here when I was very young and was essentially raised here. So I feel, uh, I feel not only from here, but um, to your point about, you know, these paintings, uh, Quanta Parker's also from Texas. And uh, so I have a very close kinship, uh, and especially in my line of work, a close kinship to the land itself. The land birthed me. It birthed the consciousness that I'm working with in, in this, uh, you know, phase of my um, being. Did your openings begin in prison or did it happen after you got you left prison and met uh, certain people? It, the openings happened before I went to prison, honestly. I was arrested. It was very public. It was... Uh, a, a huge wake-up call in so many ways as a as a you know felony, and so right from the beginning when I was uh, nineteen years old, I was in a place of looking inward, and that came through vipassana meditation. It came oh, through nice. uh, different um, you know the business that I was choosing to go down in that part of my life was, was very, is entrepreneurial. So there's a lot of self-improvement that kind of was associated with that. Um, and so it, it had already begun for sure, but it got hyper accelerated after going to prison and coming out. And then I started doing men's work, you know, like mankind project and other different okay. men's groups. And that led me you know, slowly into uh, different physical practices, like embodiment practices, whether it's ecstatic dance or acro yoga, and then eventually to plant medicine and hunting. And that's kind of, you know, the, the, the genesis. Yeah, before we get to the plant medicine hunting, um, the embodied practices, was that your first time learning to be inside of a body? Like, or, or did you kind of I always have that kind of inclination, like, oh, I, I have a body, I'm inside of the body. I have the felt lived experience. I think there's, there's a, it's yes and no. Uh, for hmm. at one level, I, I grew up and I was very, I had a, uh, two strong polarities in, in the way that I uh, showed up in my childhood. One was this incredibly curious intellectual kid who was, very bookish. I liked Legos uh, for all intents and purposes. If you want to put a label on it, there was kind of a nerd quality to it. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other end of the spectrum, I was, you know, the only freshman who made the, the varsity soccer team. I was a very high level soccer player. I ended up, you know, playing on the Olympic development team. I wow. swam competitively and was ranked highly in the state of Texas. And so I had these kind of poles where I, I, 
definitely showed up as kind of a nerd, but as far as my physical prowess was concerned, there was something there that I got uh, that was special, that was nourishing in some way. And, but I don't think that it was fully embodied necessarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took until it took my uh, arrest in early twenties to really come into a level of embodiment. And the first practice that allowed me to do that was dance. And it was not any kind of structure around dance. There was just, uh, there was a, a, a noticing for me that I could dance very easily when I drank alcohol. And then I started to essentially make a commitment that I I wanted to be free enough to dance in my body and express myself without the use of that substance. And that set me on a path of, you know, a year or two where I just would go out uh, on the weekends specifically to dance with no alcohol, with no other motivation, just dancing. And I ended up having some profound experiences, you know, waking up in the next morning after significantly less sleep than I was used to and feeling more energized because I had just, you know, self-expressed so fully. Yeah. So actually that's, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you, you talked about some of the states that you induced either intentionally or accidentally through the ecstatic dance. And you just mentioned like what happened the next morning, but like, you know, was there a learning process as you're kind of going through the ecstatic dance? Like, Oh, there are different states of consciousness that, or induced through this practice? Yes, there were, there were different stages. I don't know that I had the sophistication to really acknowledge all of the different uh, steps as I went through them, but there were definitely small things that showed up that gave me some clarity. For example, at the time I had glasses right now, I have, I have, LASIK so I can see fine now, but at the time I had glasses and I would notice that if I took my glasses off, I was so blind. I couldn't see any of my external world. It allowed me to go more inward and my dancing became more self-expressed, more enjoyable in a way. And I also noticed uh, a level of almost like a trance state of feel of letting all the stories that I think all of us to some degree have kind of bouncing around in our head, like not good enough, not this enough, not that enough. They all quieted as I entered certain flow states of dance. And it was, and then there was, there's a very clear, um, ability that I was tapping into of letting my body lead my mind as opposed to my mind leading my body. And, uh, yeah, it turns out I'm naturally a pretty damn good dancer. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. So I heard you say a little yoga, not a little yoga, but you do yoga and ecstatic dance. But from there, how did you get into kind of the native American tradition that you're now um, an exemplar into or of well that was in many ways it was it was kind of accidental and it happened around the same time I remember as I this was before I went to prison I actually somehow found this spiritual teacher Will Starhart 
he lived 45 minutes away from me and he was uh, essentially having monthly sweat lodges and he would have a sweat lodge where afterwards we would have like a potluck. And I still to this day, I'm, I'm so grateful that I just trusted my intuition, but I don't know even like how I was drawn there, but I was probably the youngest by three to four decades. Um, wow. it was, I mean, he's 81 and his, yeah. you know, like this community is like much older than me. I was just, just had turned 20. Of course they opened me, they welcomed me with open arms. They were, they were very loving. And in retrospect, it was, it was surprising. I think that I chose to go into that realm on a Saturday morning, for example, instead of, you know, partying late on a Friday mm-hmm. night, I was still living in a college dorm room. I went to the university of Texas. So I was mm-hmm. in the middle of arguably a very kind of like chaotic party environment, but mm-hmm. I, for some reason was just drawn to this, this elder, this practice. And I think, I think it's because, you know, a big part of my being, I believe that everybody has a desire to kind of connect in that way. So one is connecting with elders, which is a very traditional and ancient thing that we've done, right? Having elders teaching us and guiding us. And then two, uh, a practice of a sweat lodge is actually, it is a very embodied practice in and of itself. You're, you're going into this process. It's you're heating up, you're in prayer, you're dancing, clapping, well, more clapping than dancing. And you're kind of getting into a trance state in the dark. And so that appealed to me, a lot of the native American, like, uh, just the philosophy and the things that he would share. Cause he's just a wise man. So he's, you know, he's just sharing things that are, that are not little nuggets here and there. And all of that resonated. And uh, what I, you know, if I have to pat my myself on the back a little bit, what was special about me at that age is that I, I said yes to that. I think everybody would have felt like this feels right in some way, but they might've chose something else. But I said yeah. yes to, to that kind of odd thing for a 20 year old to do. Yeah. And I've had a seven year at this point now it's seven years relationship with Will Starhart and his influence uh, has very much, you know, guided my work has guided my philosophy on life um, the, the, you know, the books that I read everything. And so that was kind of the genesis of that. And it, it started, you know, it started at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is, that is kind of a, a theme in indigenous cultures is this through line, this thread of patience and like building slow over time. And that's kind of what mentorship does as opposed to, you know, like, let me do a week long workshop and then now I've got a certification. (laughs) And so I'm Uh there. It's uh, (laughs) anti-American. Yes. Slow, longer process of discipline and practice and stuff. Yeah. As opposed to let's get it all yesterday. Um, Let me ask you this. So a sweat lodge, you know, metaphorically, it would seem, and I've done them, almost like being in a womb. And using that as a metaphor, what would you say, like you, some of the things that were birthed inside of you doing that kind of work? Mm. I, 
one is definitely a love for an appreciation of nature. The metaphor of the womb is, it's not just how it feels. It's, it's literally how they talk about it. It's, it is what, how they describe the sweat lodge and you're going back into the womb of the mother, the earth mother. And, and more importantly, with the lodges that I was going to, you're, you're going there to heal and you're going there to release things back into the earth. And, and so there was just this way that Will talked about this process that started to personify the earth. It started to give it life. It started to give it a, a feeling and, and, a, and an ethos and a morality almost, mm-hmm. uh, a, loving, a loving motherly kind of morality. And it took many years before I felt comfortable you know, pursuing that any further, but, but it was very clear that those seeds were planted by will and by that whole, you know, sweat lodge. You know, let me ask you this. So one of the things I'm learning from my teacher, I have, I have a teacher who has Native American lineage, is there's a difference between consuming nature. So you can go out and you can do like the biophilia, forest bathing, consuming nature, which has a healing effect. You know, so there are a lot of positive mental, emotional, and immunological and stress management effects of being out in nature as a consumer of it. But she's teaching me not to consume it, but to relate to it as an I thou, not an I it. And one of the things I'm hearing, so what I'm, one of the things I'm hearing you say is like affirming that. It's like you develop a relationship, an I thou, not an I it relationship with Mother Nature. So it wasn't just metaphorical, it was actually a relationship. And, and but you said it unfolded over time. So how did it unfold over time, and how do you relate now as differently than you might have related at the very beginning through the process that you that you're discussing right now? You're unfolding. Yeah. Well, when I say it unfolded over time, you know, partially I had those seeds laid, but at the same time, I had at the time in my life never been camping before I had never done you know anything that was really very outdoorsy and I I came to later find out my father was an avid fisherman and hunter but he never shared that with me in fact I didn't even know it until my late 20s because he had so much trauma wrapped up in his relationship with it and his father and and how those dynamics played out Uh, so I kind of grew up in cities, you know, both my parents have PhDs, they're very bookish, they're very intellectual, cerebral in some ways. And that in large part is, is, is where I came from. So it took time for me to actually get to a place where I was engaging in practices that were more uh, long-term with nature, that were more, uh, yeah, it varied in their, their context. So, you know, in my, my first relationship that I was in for four years, my partner was a great rock climber. And so she was very comfortable in the outdoors. And so we decided to go camping, we went camping and it was, it was, it was a great experience and it really opened my eyes to, to 
many different things. One, it's like how beautiful nature is. And then two, I being unprepared, like I didn't bring enough water. I didn't bring enough, I didn't have the right gear and it created so much tension and there was medicine involved as well, which amplified all the tension. And so there was, that was a really pivotal moment because it showed me both the beauty of a deeper relationship with nature, but also the, the, the responsibility that I needed to take the masculine side of my relationship with nature, which is to be able to take care of myself and, and be mindful of my own needs and, and plan and organize and, and have the knowledge. And so that was a, another big step in that development. And then as I started to explore other practices that were, they had a uniquely masculine flavor to them. Like I said, I came out of prison. I was struggling with masculinity. So I'm, I'm looking for these practices and there was kind of a triumvirate of practices. One of them was acro yoga, acro yoga, uh, kind of you're in a position where you're partnered with generally a female you're physically intimate, but not romantic. So there's like firm boundaries, but you're playing, you're, you're going against the edges of them. You're in control of certain situations of their safety. They have to surrender and trust you. So that was a very uh, powerful embodiment practice. Jiu-jitsu was another one. Oh, cool. And then hunting was one that came up that I wanted to explore. And because of the connection with nature, I pursued that pretty, pretty uh, rigorously. And that was kind of the final piece to, to having the relationship that I do now, because hunting, unlike camping, unlike hiking, unlike any other practice where you are, a, you're, you're, you're going into nature, when you're hunting, you are a part of nature. And you have to be the animal that we are, as well as the higher self that we are in that process. And there's something that's just so much more embedded in nature that is quite different than, you know, feeling like I love this external thing, this external uh, inert rock, but rather it's a living being and I'm a microorganism on that living being. Um, so before we get into talking more about the hunting piece, you kind of laid out a path, Haku yoga, uh, the um, static dance, and then you said the sacred medicine and you talked about hunting. Um, I don't know which, if that was the actual timeline of things, but talk a little bit about how the sacred medicine has played a role in your kind of explorations and your work presently. Mm-hmm. Well, my teacher says, and I love this, the plants chose you. And he means the plants chose me for a very specific message that the world or my little corner of the world needs right now. And so I had an introduction to ayahuasca a month before I went on my first hunting trip. And it was accidental. I didn't plan for them to be in close proximity, but it was obviously, it was what it was meant to be, uh, as he says. 
And in that, I had an opportunity to just reflect on the, the, the what it actually meant to take the life of an animal. And I remember crying as I was thinking, you know, imagining and visualizing this animal that I'd be, you know, taking its life. And that was the first time that I ever had a relationship with a higher power. I asked, you know, God, just kill this animal quickly and cleanly and let me, you know, do this the right way and have a right relationship with it. And so when I went and had the hunt and I was successful, it was a powerful step towards having a relationship with higher power and having a felt experience of higher power, as opposed to an intellectualized relationship with a higher power. Uh, And three, having a very direct uh, relationship with a plant. So ayahuasca being a plant kind of like really informed this relationship. It's not just with animals. It's not just with, uh, you know, the grass outside it's with this in a way it's own has its own sentience and it can teach in, in the way that you know ayahuasca does so that was kind of the genesis of, of, of how the plants and medicine work kind of informed my hunting so how did you go from hunting kind of sounds like from a very spiritual place to leading hunts as a spiritual practice of sorts <clears throat> Well, it kind of happened accidentally. It happened with people. It it happened by kind of the, without sounding too narcissistic, the, the Jesus model, like Jesus just showed up in a certain way and that attracted people. And that's kind of what happened with me. I, I came back from a hunting experience and I would just share with them all of this vulnerable, spiritual, kind of woo-woo, kind of absurd to their you know, predispositions uh, relationship with hunting. And consistently what I was receiving back from them was, wow, I have never heard about hunting in that context before. I would like to to join you sometime. And so I put together, you know, a couple of hunts for friends. And I did that just as I I never thought of it as being anything more than like something fun to do with my friends. It wasn't until last year where my partner and I for years separated where the universe kind of lined up some things. And it became very clear to me that this is my path. And this is what is meant to be birthed through me right now is, is healing and facilitating and bringing men through the rite of passage that I wish that I had had, you know, when I was younger. Uh, And so it was, it was really a process of, you know, accidentally kind of stumbling into it by the way that I was showing up and, and listening to that intuition of, of what seemed to be uniquely mine to do. Nice. Um, no accidents in the conscious universe. <laughs> I love that. Um, so walk us through what it's like then. Like if someone's listening to this going, wow, that sounds really amazing. What is it? What, like, what do I do? What's the process of working with you? What's that look like? Yeah. So many beginners, 
don't really have a lot of context. And I, uh, and I believe oftentimes it can feel pretty daunting as far as trying to learn about licensing and guns and all these things. And so generally people who come to me, they sign up uh, using an application that we get on a call together and we just chat a little bit about, you know, their, uh, their, desi- their desire to hunt and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I walk them through essentially all of those things that a beginner might feel uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible for them to not show up and still feel a little bit on their edge. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be on their edge, to be kind of unsure about what they're going to learn, how they're going to learn and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But I equip them, you know, I have a full 11 module course that attendees get that kind of walks them through a bunch of guided meditations and journaling prompts and really helps them to reflect on what it is that they're seeking to achieve. And, and, uh, and then once they come on the pro on the experience itself, um, many of them, never have shot a gun in their life. So they are going through the process of first learning how to take responsibility for this incredibly powerful tool, the, the, the rifle. And then, you know, from there, it's a process of learning how to stock, how to hunt with a guide, of course, and take the right shot on an animal. And then, you know, gut it, clean it, skin it all the way down to eating it. So uh, many attendees, not all, but many come to the weekend with zero experience and they leave the weekend having learned how to fire a gun, fired on, like learned how to hunt to some degree, fired on an animal, go through the whole process of cleaning it, gutting it and everything, and then eating it. And that is a huge you know, transformation just in their life experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, in the middle, we have plant medicine ceremony, which really contextualizes everything in their life around this. Like how is hunting a metaphor for life? Because it is, it's a great metaphor for life. Mm -hmm. And when you take the medicine, you can see how it shows up. You can see how the hesitation to take a shot shows up in your life. You can see how taking a shot too quickly shows up in your life. So everyone gets the medicine that they specifically are designed to get in that experience. Um, And it, you know, it can be incredibly powerful. I've had people, I can't tell you how many people have, you know, had really deep breakthroughs uh, related to death and their relationship to death, whether it's in people or animals or the food that they eat or their own mortality Uh, People who, you know, have left their job shortly thereafter, simply, you know, realizing that for them, like their mission and purpose was something different and they were listening to that. So it's, it's uh, my greatest joy to be able to see the reflection of their transformation and healing. Nice. Now, so like, how does, you're in Texas, I assume, and this is all in Texas. Yep. This is all, all the beginner experiences anyway, are done in Texas. People fly into Austin, Texas, and then we go to the hill country to hunt. Okay. And is it like over how many days? Usually it's, they come in on like a Thursday if they're flying in and then it officially starts Friday morning until Sunday. Okay. 
Now you can work with individuals, you work with groups of people. Like how, how does that break down if someone wants to work with you? Yeah, usually I I work with groups. I work with groups of about six. And uh, early on, I was, you know, in a place where I was just wanting to get, uh, I was wanting to do more experiences. I was wanting to have more people. And so I was kind of, um, I was open to doing like two people here, one person here, whatever the case is. Um, now I have so much demand that I pretty much have to just have them, in, you know, once a month uh, or so, and then six or seven people per experience. And it's a group, it's a group hunt. Is it a group of people who know each other or do you have people who come in? I have people who come in from all over the place and all different walks of life. And what I find is that there's a very high self-selecting process. Like if you see how I talk about hunting and you learn about sacred hunting and you go through the steps of application, et cetera, there's already a predisposition towards like inner growth transformation and, and learning about oneself and learning about this practice and open-mindedness. So there's so much that's, uh, uh, that's similar that I, all of the people that I've experienced have, you know, gelled pretty well and obviously some better than others, but and I would imagine if, if a group of people come, they already know each other, it just uh, tightens their connections. Uh, a group of strangers know, don't leave you on Sunday, no longer strangers. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I, don't, I, I take people's phones away for the duration of the weekend so people can, you know, really drop into a sense of tribe with these other men in a very nice. short period of time. That's awesome. Where can people learn more about your offering? Yeah, if they want to uh, learn more video, there's plenty of videos and, and, and experiences from other people at sacredhunting.com. And they can just go through, fill out an application and set up a call if they're interested and we can chat more about it. All right. So if they, if they have more questions based on this conversation, they can reach out through you, the website, and then you guys would jump on the call or Zoom and yeah, I basically have a call with every single uh, participant or applicant, and I do that so that I can vet them and just make sure that there's alignment in their vision and their motivations and desires before they attend. Fantastic. And your website one more time? It's sacredhunting.com. Well, thank you so much. This is amazing. Let me encourage people to follow up, check out your videos, check out your site. And it sounds like a great rite of passage, not just for like, you know, a young man who wants to become a, an adult, but even for adults. Actually, let me ask that before we finish this up. What's the usual age for the average age of people who come in this process for you? Yeah, I would say they're anywhere between late 20s to 50s. And Absolutely. sometimes there are some younger, you know, 18 to 20 year olds whose parents want them to participate. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, but the, the range is definitely between, you know, upper, third, upper 20s and, and 50. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. Absolutely. And I wish you much success. Thank you, Michael. Take care.